The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Eating disorders are not just a case of someone restricting their food intake. An eating disorder is a serious mental illness which is known to have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. And tragically, the suicide rates of anorexia are 32 times higher than that of the general population. Globally, the incidence of eating disorders, disordered eating and body image issues are on the rise. Currently around 4% of the Australian population is experiencing an eating disorder. This equates to 1 million Australians. Today we speak with consultant psychiatrist at Hollywood Hospital, Dr Vash Singh, who specialises in eating, mood and anxiety disorders. We're with Dr Vash, psychiatrist at Hollywood Hospital, who is a specialist in eating disorders. Thank you for joining us today, Dr Vash. Thank you very much for asking me. So... Can I first ask you, what is an eating disorder and what are the different types of eating disorders? So eating disorders are a group of psychiatric disorders that include disorders such as anorexia, bulimia, and most commonly binge eating disorder. Um, There are also other eating disorders, especially one called ARFID, which is most prevalent in children and younger adolescents. Um, Eating disorders are characterized by an over-evaluation of weight and shape and a preoccupation with losing weight, a fear of weight gain, judging oneself negatively based on what you look like, and it incorporates a number of symptoms, including restriction of one's oral intake, compensating for eating by over-exercising or purging, and in binge eating disorder, recurrent episodes of binge eating without compensation. Okay. And how prevalent are eating disorders in Australia and maybe all over the world? Are they increasing or? So eating disorders are quite prevalent, but unknown because they're such a silent uh, group of illnesses. So anorexia occurs at a rate at a prevalence of about 1% in the population. Bulimia is um, slightly more than that, 2 to 3% of the population. But actually, a less known fact is that the commonest eating disorder is actually binge eating disorder. And binge eating disorder occurs at a prevalence of between 6 to 10% in the population. So it's actually commoner than anorexia and bulimia put together, even though most of the focus goes on to anorexia and bulimia. So why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't think of binge eating as an eating disorder? Well, I think it's because um, it's only recently been classified in uh, the psychiatric terminology as an eating disorder. I think in the past, these people would present to their doctors and were told to go on diets or were sent for bariatric surgery without any real assessment of uh, why they are overweight. And if we examine that further, we would find find that they actually have a loss of control over eating and recurring episodes of binge eating linked with a great deal of uh, psychological distress. So is eating disorder a psychological, uh, a mental health condition? Yes, it is a mental health condition, but um, unlike other mental health conditions, there is also significant medical comorbidity. And what I mean by that is eating disorders result in very serious 
physical consequences for the individual who suffers from it. Uh, and that can affect um, their heart and many other systems in their body. Um, and so that's why uh, we take it very seriously and we would like to intervene early because it is not just something that affects someone's mind. It has very serious physical consequences and can in fact lead to death. Okay. So why would it be that some people are prone to getting an eating disorder and other people might not in their lifetime? Well, I think um, we're very clear about the fact that eating disorders have a genetic component to it. Um, So that's now not in doubt. Uh, There have been uh, many studies done all over the world that shows that if you have a family history of eating disorders, you are much more at risk of having an eating disorder. However, what seems to trigger the eating disorder is dieting. Mm. And dieting, as you well know, is very common in our society. And if you're someone that's predisposed to having an eating disorder and you go on a diet, well, the, the likelihood is that you will end up having an eating disorder. And in terms of social media, I know Instagram myself, I've, I was a person that never went on social media until I think last year. And suddenly it's amazing how addictive social media can become, and particularly Instagram, which is based on imaging. We're looking at images of other people all the time. And even yourself, when you think you're a confident person, you can start looking at people and think, wow, that they look amazing. And you start to compare. Have you noticed in your own clinic the more social media has been on the rise, the more of an increase in eating disorders? Absolutely. I think that's the case. I think those of us that work in eating disorders see that it has uh, a part to play, not just in the emergence of more eating disorders, but also in prolonging eating disorders. In general, it can never be a good thing when we're comparing ourselves and what we look like to other people. And in reality, those are it's not a real representation of how people are on an everyday basis. People only post photos of themselves when they think they're looking really good. Mm. And um, then we have a situation where other people comment on those Mm. photos and I don't think that could ever lead to anything positive in someone who is either predisposed to having an eating disorder or is suffering from an eating disorder. And that's the sad thing isn't it is that there could be people out there that could have an increased risk of having an eating disorder and they're looking at imaging and comparing and doing things in their everyday that could be actually making their situation worse or or making them prone to having an eating disorder. Absolutely. Um, I often will tell my patients that while they are trying to recover from their eating disorder, being on social media is not going to be helpful Mm. for them. And so when is someone's strict diet or fussy eating a concern to a friend or family member? I think that in adolescence, it's quite common that people uh, or young people will experience uh, a dissatisfaction with the way they look and Mm. perhaps try to alter the way they look by either changing how they eat or exercising more. Sometimes uh, it goes on further and uh, and young people start to cut out certain food groups or in more extreme cases become uh, vegetarian or vegan. And I think that um, for parents, those would be warning signs. Other warning signs would include a change in their personality where they become more withdrawn. They don't like socializing with friends and family and especially don't like eating with friends and family. Mm. And obviously, if you see weight loss and you see uh, those other signs, then that would be cause for concern and seeing one's GP would probably be the way to go. Okay. And those are definitely the signs and symptoms. And then when people are starting to feel concerned, whether it's a family or a friend, you have a discussion with that person? Do you find when that's happened 
the actual patient or the um, the person in need is open to hearing it or how have you found in your own clinic? Actually, um, it's often the opposite, that confronting someone about the uh, issues with eating often doesn't result in a positive outcome at the beginning. Because they try to keep it uh, secret, secret, uh, they will protect that secret often and uh, be defensive. And it might even uh, result in anger. And that may lead parents to withdraw from those conversations. But I think uh, my message for parents out there is that you need to trust yourself uh, and trust your judgment about your child. And if you have concerns, to persist with it. Because Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, if your child has an eating disorder, it has serious consequences. Mm -hmm. And so we'd rather be safe than sorry. And so who's at risk of suffering eating disorder? I think, as you say, sometimes in our mind, when we hear the word eating disorder, we often just categorise, oh, it only affects young women. But by the sound of it, it also can affect children and men. Yes, so the peak age of onset is usually 12 to 16, um, and it is predominantly an illness of uh, young women, Mm -hmm. um, but it is an illness that can persist through the lifetime if not treated or if uh, the sufferer is unable to recover. We know that about 10% of men will suffer from an eating disorder, but we don't know whether that rate is increasing, and we also suspect that that is an underrepresentation because Mm men tend not to present with symptoms of an eating disorder because there's so much of stigma around it and in particular it's considered to be a disorder of women. And how is an eating disorder diagnosed? So um, there's different eating disorders of course but with anorexia the diagnosis is made on a a restricting one's oral intake um, leading to significant weight loss, Mm -hmm. uh, preoccupation with body image, uh, a fear of weight gain and judging oneself negatively based on what you look like. In the past, there used to be a weight criteria and the need for sufferers to have lost their period, but that's no longer the case. So in actual fact, you can be what is considered to a normal BMI, but have anorexia if you've lost a great deal of weight through restriction or compensation for eating. I think the thing about all eating disorders is that it does impact significantly on a person's functioning, both mm. um, at school and in their relationships and at work and it disrupts their developmental trajectory when they're um, young. And so what about uh, diagnosing binge eating? I think everyone, or there'd be a lot of people listening to this podcast that would say, oh yeah, I I can eat a whole tray of Tim Tams or how do you know that you're binge eating is becoming a problem, you really need to speak to a doctor. Mm. So um, with binge eating disorder, sufferers have recurring episodes of binge eating. And when I talk about binge eating, I don't just mean eating a a packet of Tim Tams. Uh, It usually does involve eating a larger amount of food than most people could consume in a very short period of time. And it's associated with a great deal of distress. Uh, During the binge episodes, sufferers uh, have a loss of control over eating. That is, they feel like they cannot stop. They often describe feeling uh, dissociated from what they are doing and they're eating very fast. They're eating beyond feeling full and it often uh, occurs in in very short spurts of time and in secret. And then how is an eating disorder treated? So again, the treatment depends on the type of eating disorder you have. But if one has anorexia, 
and is underweight, the treatment will start with weight restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, weight restoration is the key. And then uh, once uh, weight is restored, the hallmark treatment for anorexia is a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders. And this is provided only by specialist psychologists trained in the area. And for younger sufferers of eating disorders, the gold standard of care is family-based therapy. For bulimia, the focus is on regulating eating and normalizing eating patterns and uh, limiting compensatory behaviors such as purging or using laxatives. Again, the uh, psychological therapy for bulimia is cognitive behavioral therapy. With binge eating disorder, Mm. um, binge eating disorder does involve normalizing eating and reducing binge eating episodes. And again, uh, psychological therapies are very important here, often a mixture of cognitive behavioral therapy and DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. With binge eating disorder, there is actually medication that might be useful uh, as opposed to other eating disorders, but you would need a referral from uh, your GP to see a psychiatrist or someone who um, is a specialist in the area. And how effective is treatment? So in your own clinic or in your experience, when people have gone through the hardest journey, which is being diagnosed, coming and seeing someone like yourself, how effective have you seen the treatment? Well, I actually feel very optimistic working in the area of eating disorders because I think that most people will get better from it. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a cohort, well, this, certainly the evidence suggests that there is a cohort of people who end up having severe and enduring anorexia mm-hmm. and that persists uh, through the, their lifetime. However, most people, if they have access to treatment early, will get better and will go on to lead uh, very productive lives. I think the key, though, is that we need to intervene early. And also, unfortunately, once someone has an eating disorder, recovery from an eating disorder is not quick. Mm -hmm. So on average, recovery is between five to seven years for anorexia. And that is quite a bit longer than we're used to for other psychiatric illnesses. Um, But it is important that everyone, all the healthcare team and families are in it for the long haul. So it's in terms of your loved one or family or friend that's been diagnosed and they're undergoing treatment and who may be often feeling quite helpless, what's your advice for them, for those people to help them? What can they do? Well, I would say that seeing your GP initially is, it would be the first step Mm. uh, because these illnesses have medical and physical complications associated with it. A medical checkup is always um, step one to ensure that someone is medically safe. Mm. And then if that is the case, referral to a psychologist and or a dietitian who specializes in this area would be important. Mm. And if required, if there's significant depression or anxiety or a severe eating disorder, a general practitioner will often refer to a psychiatrist who specializes in this area. And so will often someone have an eating disorder with a coexisting, perhaps another uh, mental health condition? So anxiety, for instance? Absolutely. Um, We know that um, eating disorders tend to occur in people who have obsessional or perfectionistic personality traits um, and that predisposes them not just to an eating disorder but also to anxiety disorders and other mood disorders. It is more the norm than the exception that when someone has an eating disorder they will have comorbid depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those disorders get better when we treat the eating disorder but at other times they need treatment in conjunction with treatment of the eating disorder. And that's good to know and that's why it's not a simple answer of I think there could be perhaps people or myths out there of oh they just need to eat more 
but it, it's so much more complex. Absolutely it is. Um, these people who suffer from eating disorders are really truly suffering. Yes. And if they could stop, they would because I can't imagine that people would, would want put themselves like yeah. um, through that. It's a terrible illness to live with. They're not doing it to manipulate anyone or to, it's not something that they can turn on and turn off. Yes. Uh, it is, uh, they have a loss of control over their symptoms. Uh, they have an extreme fear of weight gain and they have severe anxiety, often panic when they eat, which is terrible because mm. for most of us, we just take eating for granted and it's yes. such a pleasurable thing. But for them, it's something that they fear mm. and it leads to a lot of distress. In your own clinic, have you seen patients who have come for diagnosis and now living a, a healthy, happy life? Absolutely, I have. And that's why I feel um, that it's such a good area to work in because we actually do see people getting better. Yeah. Uh, and when they get better, they go on to make a huge contribution to society. It is not like a lot of other chronic mental illnesses where often people are debilitated and can't go on to work or, or, or function, really. Uh, when people get better from an eating disorder, they get better and they go on to lead a full life. As you say, the sooner people can reach out and get that support, the better. Absolutely. And by professionals that specialise in the area. Like Absolutely. Yourself, in terms of there are psychiatrists that, or and psychologists that, and dietitians, a whole team of people that just specialise in eating disorders. Absolutely. And that occurs not just for adolescents and children, but also in the adult field. They're not enough of us, but they're certainly enough people for patients to access treatment. And if you're unsure about what the next step is, the best place to contact would be WADOCS, which is the WA Eating Disorder Consultation and Outreach Service. The acronym is W-A-E-D-O-C-S and you can Google that and they have a, a number that you can contact and they will often direct you to um, the first port of call. Let's break some myths of eating disorders. So attention-seeking behaviour. Have you heard that one before? And Yes, I have. Yeah. And it doesn't apply to people with eating disorders. In fact, quite the opposite. People with eating disorders keep their symptoms a secret, so they're not, uh, se they're not seeking attention for it. Yes. And in terms of it, they're just a picky eater? I think there is a phenomenon of people, of young, especially children and young adolescents having picky eating, but usually it doesn't affect them physically, it doesn't affect them emotionally or psychologically, and uh, they don't have an eating disorder that is quite different from having an eating disorder. Similarly, disordered eating is not the same as having an eating disorder. So we know that the dieting culture is quite prevalent yes. in our society, people talking about it all the time on one or other diet. And, you know, that is uh, that could be considered to be disordered eating, but not an eating disorder. If people are concerned, is there support groups out there for people with eating disorders? Yes, there are support groups. So Bridges is a support group for families and people suffering from eating disorders. Uh, the Women's Health Network is mm -hmm. also a support group where you can self-refer and Bridges can also direct you to other eating disorder support groups. And in terms of success for treatment, is it something that a sufferer will really have to work hard on for all their life or will they get to a point in their life where they have a, a relationship with food that is uh, more positive? 
I think it differs. I think there's some individuals who do recover, by all, for all intents and purposes, are recovered from an eating disorder. However, their relationship with food is a tenuous one and they remain at risk of relapse of an eating disorder at times of stress in their lives. Uh, but there are other people who develop a, a normal relationship with food and they go on to have uh, you know, no issues and, of, uh, and their risk of relapse is lower. And so for people listening to this podcast who've been diagnosed, they've gone through the journey, they've now recovered, um, have you got advice for them out there? So would they be looking at their lifestyle and doing particular things that support them to have long-term success? Well, I think in general, managing stress would be, you know, would be something that you'd have to invest in because we know that, you know, if you are, if you have a stressful lifestyle, the risk of your relapse is higher. Uh, but in general, the things that we would advise people have recovered from an eating disorder are the things that we would just advise the general population in terms of, you know, um, adopting healthy lifestyle patterns. Yeah. So stress management, exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for today. And I'll make sure I put all the links in the uh, in the website in the podcast notes thank you for today thank you very much a big thank you to dr singh for giving her time and sharing her knowledge to learn more about dr singh please visit ramseyhealth.com.au and please speak to your doctor and reach out for support if you're in need or go online and look at nedc.com.au or the butterflyfoundation.org.au You've been listening to MediTalk, a podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You can follow MediTalk podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, please take a minute to subscribe, rate and review this podcast via iTunes or your podcasting app. If you have any health topics you would like to hear discussed, please email them to danae at meditalk.com.au. Thanks for listening.